Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Skywalk Podcast. My name is Gavin. I will be your host for this evening's talk all about astronomy, stars, everything space. Our top stories for today. A bare face on Mars has been spotted. Soon, there will be killer nova explosion. And NASA has just lost over 200 photos of Jupiter. Hey guys, how's it going? It's been uh, another week, and so we have some great stories and topics and some cool objects to talk about today. Uh, off the start, though, one thing I do want to mention, of course, is my appreciation of all of you guys. I want to say thank you, as I always do at the top of these episodes here, because you guys have been absolutely incredible lately. All of the love and support on the podcast and especially on the YouTube shorts has been outstanding and I just want to share my appreciation with you guys because it really means the world to me. I love this little community that we've started building and it's just going to allow for us to be able to do more things, cooler things, bigger things. So again, I appreciate you guys. Keep up all the love and support because it just means the world to me and algorithm reasons, it will help us get discovered a little bit more as well. One thing that I do want to mention is that uh, previously we've been using the Twitter account to get photos and all that sort of thing that go along with the episodes. Probably going to be putting that on hold. It's I know it's a small thing, but it's still time and effort that I just can't give right now. So I'm sorry if that disappoints anyone, but uh, the Twitter will be a little bit uh, not that active for the coming while. Uh, I need to get through the semester of school and whatnot while I'm also trying to make the other content and I want to put a lot more energy into the shorts uh, than into the Twitter, if that makes sense. So yeah, again, Twitter will be around and hopefully it'll come back, but right now there's not going to be too much activity on it. And just to keep you guys informed and what you can expect, the schedule for upcoming episodes. So I will be doing recordings of this podcast on Thursday nights, so if there's any stories or comments, questions you want to uh, let me know, then make sure to get them in before Thursday uh, when I record these episodes. I'm not going to be doing live recordings anymore. It just makes life a little bit easier to not have to worry about all the things that come with live streaming. But these episodes will air uh, as, as they have been Fridays at 2 in the morning, uh, Mountain Time. All these times are going to be in Arizona uh, Standard Time. And then we will do our typical Space News recap taken from this podcast episode on Saturdays at 10 a.m. And then the supplemental uh, content, uh, this is where it's changing a little bit. Instead of last week, I believe I did Sunday and Tuesday. We're just going to shift it back one day, kind of uh, spread the wealth throughout the week. And so it will be Monday and Wednesdays at 10 in the morning is when the other supplemental shorts that you guys have known and love, when those will come out, will be then. So that's the new schedule. Not, not big changes, but just little minor things. Want to make sure you guys know what to expect for the coming weeks. But without further ado, let's jump into the episode. This is the Skywalk Podcast Season 2, Episode 4. My name is Gavin. I will be your host for this evening's Talk About Stars. Uh, today, we do not have any guests but that means it is time for us to embark on our journey through the stars. Sit back, relax, get a hot drink on a nice cold day like today, and get a soft cookie to go along with it. As always, guys, star cookies get bonus points. We should really make a 
I might try to design a shirt for Star Cookie. I think that would be, I think that would be fun. Our first story of the day. Scientists at the University of Arizona have just spotted a bear face on the surface of Mars. On January 25th, uh, U of A has just posted this photo, absolutely hilarious photo, that incredibly resembles a bear. A lot of times when we talk about things in science, what we call it, what we say things look like, don't necessarily line up with what humans would actually normally think. But this photo is very uncanny for how much it looks like a bear and resembles a bear face. You have the circle going around it, you have a big mountain range, nose, a mouth, eyes of craters. It is incredible, the resemblance to a bear face, and I just think it's absolutely hilarious. They took this photo using uh, the high-res imager on NASA's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, or the MRO. So high-res, capital H, lowercase i, capital R, rise, uh, imager, or known as the high-res imaging experiment, was an, an experiment, but to try to get the most advanced uh, high-resolution camera they could onto the orbiter before they launched it. And I'm glad they did it because look at this photo. It's just, I, I can't get over the photo. It's so funny. And while we don't think that there's really anything too significant about the region, it, they've determined that it seems like it's just a broken hill. So some sort of hilly region that cracked and that's where we get the mouth and whatnot and the formation of it. And then a couple impact craters making the eyes and all the other features and inside of a bigger crater that was makes up the head of it. So nothing really too sciencey about it, but just absolutely hilarious image. And I've been seeing it everywhere. It's absolutely wonderful. But our next story of this evening, NASA has just spotted the first candidate for a killer Nova system that is yet to happen. The system is called CDP-292176 and it houses the neutron star, get ready for it, SGR 0755-2933. Wonderful naming scheme, people. Great job. Absolutely wonderful. <laughs> but this right now is a binary system. So it is two stars orbiting around each other. But what makes it unique is that it is a still alive, fully functioning star. And its companion is a neutron star. But we think that this is a candidate for a system to go killer nova. You've probably heard of supernova before, but this is a killer nova. It's different. This type of system uh, estimated at one in a billion odds of being able to see it, and it's about 11,000 light years away from us. And so this old neutron star, a neutron star being the remnants of a dead star, uh, we don't think exploded, which is interesting. Usually, in order for a star to be big enough to create a, a neutron star, it has to explode in a supernova. But we think that at the end of the life of stars, when in the binary system, uh, they start to give some of their matter to their other star. They start giving some of themselves to their companion. We think that this star gave too much, and so it didn't have the mass in order to do the big supernova explosion. And so it just kind of fizzled out. And this is important because usually when one star goes supernova, the explosion throws the other star away or makes the orbit elliptical and just really messes up the system. But again, that's not the case in this system. The live star 
we think could follow the same pattern of as this given by the properties and so we think that it would become what's called a stripped supernova where it gives too much of its matter in this case back to the neutron star and this will happen in about a million years from now after it gives away uh, enough of its matter it fizzles out and becomes another neutron star and now we have two neutron stars in the system millions of years after that we think that these neutron stars should collide given that they weren't pushed away from each other and this is what's known as a killer nova is when two neutron stars collide and make another insane explosion super super energetic violently explodes everything these killer nova explosions are actually a really really high source of plutonium xenon uranium and gold a recent killer nova explosion that we saw the remnants of happened in 2017 and it launched a hundred earths worth of this very valuable material just willy-nilly into space so while we won't be able to see this killer nova explosion happen in our lifetime it's still really incredible to see that we're finding candidates like this because who knows maybe we'll find one that's a lot closer and we could actually see it explode but with all that said, let's move on to our third and final story of today. And this story is a funny one because NASA has just lost hundreds of photos of Jupiter from a recent flyby mission. NASA's Juno spacecraft launched in 2011 and it got to Jupiter in 2016. In this time, it's done around 50 flybys of the planet. This most recent flyby happened on January 22nd and it only captured about one-fifth of the images that it was trying to capture. And see, this is where it's interesting, is that this actually happened previously. In December, it had its flyby before this most recent one, and it also experienced issues. While it didn't lose as many as this last mission, it's weird that this is a common trend now. Scientists think that the issue lies in the camera itself, called JunoCam. They think that the camera is overheating, which is causing for this error in this camera. And in December, along with overheating, it actually also experienced a memory glitch, which put the spacecraft into a safe mode. And while they didn't receive all of the photos, eventually they woke it back up and they were able to receive a good amount of those images. The issue with this most recent overheating, the one in December, it lasted only about 26 mi minutes, and they only lost about the first four images from that flyby. However, in January, it lasted for over a day. 26 hours this camera was overheating and malfunctioning. Meaning that of all the images, 214 became unusable blurry messes, while only 14 were decent. The next flyby mission is scheduled for March 1st, so scientists are hoping that they can fix this issue before that time. And even more incredible is that this camera, JunoCam, wasn't even the initial thought for the spacecraft. It was actually a secondary thought. They weren't going to put it on the spacecraft. The JunoCraft has other science mission and instruments on it, and that's its main purpose. But NASA decided to add this JunoCam as kind of a public outreach component so it could get nice colorful images of Jupiter as it did these flybys past it. And this JunoCam wasn't supposed to last as long as it has. It was only designed to withstand about seven flybys of Jupiter and then it would probably die. 
but it is now well into its 40s and getting into 50s of flybys, and it's still working to a point. And that's on top of the spacecraft also exceeding its lifetime, just like the camera. The Juno mission was so. The Juno mission ended in July of 2021, and it's still going strong and expected to last until around September of 2025. So absolutely incredible that even though there's some mishaps, this whole mission has well exceeded its parameters. But those are our stories for this episode. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it. I know I enjoy researching these different stories. I try to change it up a little bit, keep the style a little bit different of what topics we're talking about. That's why I included that bear uh, on Mars and whatnot. Uh, just trying to keep things fresh. Make sure that there's a little bit of something for everybody if you listen to episodes. But now that we've finished that, we can move on to our next section where we talk about our object of the week. And I'm really excited about this one. There's a lot of juicy information when we're talking about HR 2491, which is a funny, funny name of a catalog number for the brightest star in the night sky, Sirius. Now, when we're talking about Sirius, we can't talk about who discovered it because it's just a super bright star. It's always been there in the case of human history. And so there's no discovery. It's just always been in the sky. And it's been the like probably the brightest thing in the sky for that entire time. What we can talk about is its description. And so the star is about 230 million years old. It formed in a molecular cloud called a stellar nursery which would have housed a lot of hydrogen gas and other things that are good for creating a star. But that's basically it of how it was created. It started just like any other star had started at the beginning of its life, just like our sun. As for the other components to it, its right ascension is 6 hours, 45 minutes, and 08.917 seconds. Declination is going to be negative 16 degrees, 42 arc minutes, 58.02 arc seconds. And this star is called a A0 or an A1 uh, spectral type of star. So that's just the classification. Our sun is a G25 star. So it's just ways that we can catalog similar uh, properties of stars. But this type of spectral class of star is actually some of the most common, easily seen by the naked eye stars. You have bright stars like Sirius, Vega, Deneb, Gamma Ursae Majoris, which is a very fancy name for one of the uh, bright stars that make up the bucket of the Big Dipper. And so all very bright stars that you see in the sky are this type of star. But how are you able to find it? I know that I say it's the brightest star in the sky, but, you know, there's a lot of bright stars. Well, it is the brightest. You'll probably see it twinkling quite a bit. I know we answered a question, I think it was the last episode, about why Sirius twinkles so much. It's big and it's bright. But it's going to look like it's having a big disco party over there. The way to find it is very easy. It's the brightest star in Canis Major, or the dog. It's sitting right at its neck, right, be right below the head. And you can find it very simply because I'm sure a lot of people are able to find Orion's belt. It's a very, very common structure in the sky. In the constellation Orion, you have the three stars that make up his belt. Use that belt. And Orion is a hunter and he has a bow in front of him. And so he's facing one direction. 
the right shoulder is Beetlejuice, that's the red star. But if you use his belt to make a straight line backwards to his his back, then you'll line up straight with Sirius. It makes a straight line from the belt to the star. And again, it should be pretty easy to see because if you go the wrong way, you're not going to hit a star, a bright star pretty quickly. If you go the other way, you will. As for how bright it is, well, its apparent magnitude is negative 1.46, and so it is br bright, bright, bright. Vega is the star that we use as zero, and that's around the fifth brightest star in the sky, and this one is, well, much, much brighter. Very easy to see. It's basically impossible to miss in the night sky. But one of the reasons I'm so excited about Sirius is because of all the cultural representations. We're finally talking about an object that's really bright, eas easily seen by the naked eye, and because of how bright it is, it has been seen by a lot of civilizations. So let's go through a few of them and learn about how they actually saw the bright star of, that we now call Sirius. Let's start with the ancient Egyptians. I absolutely love the Egyptians. I thought they're, the ancient Egyptians are such a cool society to learn about. But they're very interested in the helical rising period of Sirius. Helical rising is the first day when a star is visible again in the east in the light of dawn right before sunrise. And that it marked by Sirius in this case every 365.25 days, which you may recognize is the exact same time that Earth orbits around the sun, which makes it very consistent and very easy to spot and judge things based off of. In Cairo, Sirius has this helical rising on July 19th of the Julian calendar, and this actually marks right before the annual flooding of the Nile River back in the ancient times which was really great because you once you saw this helical rising you knew this flood was going to happen but this also relates to their worshiping of this bright star sirius as subdet which please please i will say this now i am so bad at pronunciations and we are going through a lot of cultures that i do not natively speak whatsoever and i will be pronouncing things wrong i will try my best though but there's our warning now that these may not be pronounced properly back to what we were talking about sirius was worshipped as subdet which kind of translates to triangle or sharp one and they're the grantor of fertility of the land which coincides with the flooding and kind of makes sense when you start to put everything together like that but Subdet was also later conflated into the god of, god or goddess, I'm sorry, I think it was goddess, goddess, of Isis. Isis? I-S-I-S. And it's actually really interesting because if you look at drawings of both of these goddesses, they are so incredibly similar. There's just very minute things that have actually changed about their physical appearance. The ancient Greeks also have their own stories about Isis and other goddesses like that, but we're going to relate, we're going to talk about something a little bit different. The ancient Greeks saw this as the morning star that heralded the hot and dry summer, and this led into also fears of plants that are, that the plants are going to whittle away and die, men are going to weaken, and women will become aroused. 
And we can start to relate these stories back to what we're seeing today when we know that Sirius seems to twinkle very prolifically in the sky. Well, they saw this twinkling in unsettled, unsettled weather in the early summer as malignant influence. And people actually were said to have been suffering from the effects of this malignant influence, and they called this being starstruck. A little bit different connotation than what we now call start being starstruck today, but you can start to see where our terminology comes from. The season following this time was called the Dog Days, which is correlates to Canis Major being the great dog, and the star being called the Dog Star. On the island of Sios in the uh, Aegean Sea, they offered sacrifices to Sirius and Zeus to bring cool breezes, and if Sirius rose in the sky clear, then they called that good fortune. But if it rose misty and kind of bad, bad scene conditions, then it foretold pestilence and disease. And interestingly enough, we've actually recovered coins from the 3rd century BC that have dogs and stars on them with rays coming off of them. Moving on to the ancient Romans now, they celebrated the helical setting on April 25th. And as a celebration, fair warning, this is going to get a little bit graphic, they would sacrifice a dog with incense, wine, and a sheep. And they sacrificed all this to the goddess Robigo, and they did this in order to try to stop wheat from rusting, because they thought that Sirius was emanating this bad aura that would cause wheat rust. And so by doing this sacrifice, it would stop that from happening in the coming year. The last culture we're going to talk about is the Polynesians. The Polynesians, wayfinders and absolute incredible navigators, even in today's standards, and all they had to use were the stars. They, of course, used Sirius for navigation, but they also saw it as other cultural things as well. The declination of Sirius matched the latitude of Archipelago of Fiji, and this being 17 degrees south. And each sidereal day, Sirius passes directly overhead of these islands, which means that you can use that, again, for navigation and wayfinding. Sirius was also seen as part of the great bird constellation called Manu, as seen by the Pacific Ocean Polynesians. The New Zealand Polynesians, however, when they saw it in the morning sky, it marked the winter uh, for the Maori. They actually called this star Takuro, and that's the name of both the star and the season that it was marking. Moving over to Hawaii, they called it the Queen of Heaven, or Kalua, and they would have celebrations at its culmination at the winter solstice. A few more other names and references that Polynesians referred to the star as. In the Marquesias Islands, they called it Taua. In New Zealand, it was also heard as Riua. And bear with me on this one, but in Tahiti, it was seen as two, two different translations. One as Festival of Original High Chiefs, which is Ta'arua Faupapa. Or it was also seen as Festivity Who Rises with Prayers and Religious Ceremonies. And this was Ta'arua Ihiti Iti Tara Te Fahia. Again, I apologize for bad pronunciation. I'm trying my best here, but I I can only do so much. And that's the that's some of the cultural representations that we have of Sirius. Again, really, really rich history talking about this star. A lot of people saw it differently. However, we have to talk about something else. 
and there is a discovery that is related to this star. This star is not alone. It actually has a companion called Sirius B. And for any Harry Potter fans out there, yes, we have a Sirius B in the Great Dog star. No correlation to Sirius Black there whatsoever. But Sirius B, this small little companion star that's orbiting with Sirius A, was discovered on August 10th of 1844 by German astronomer Frederick Wilhelm Bessel. And he noticed this when studying the proper motion of the star and noticed that there was a change in it, which must have related to a companion. But it wasn't actually seen until January 31st of 1862, when Elvin Graham Clark was testing an 18 and a half inch refractor from Northwestern Observatory, which at the time, that was the largest telescope in the US. And he actually noticed this binary star right next to it. And a little side note is that Elvin Clark is an absolutely incredible telescope maker, and I imagine that 18 and a half inch probably still works like a charm today. At Lowell Observatory, we have a 24 inch Clark refractor, and it is probably the most incredible telescope and piece of machinery that I've ever seen and had the pleasure of looking through. And again, it's 126 years old, that one, works like a charm. And I think it's the best telescope that we have at the observatory. Elvin Clark was an absolute genius of a telescope maker. Kind of stories that you would hear of, he could look at glass that wasn't bending light properly, rub his hand on it, and the friction from his hand on the glass smoothed it to what it needed to be. That was the kind of level that Elvin Clark uh, was making telescopes at. That was just a little sidetrack, but I wanted to mention that. Again, just like our previous object or two, since this was in the 1800s and mid to late 1800s, Charles Messier was not around for this, so there is no Charles Messier for this object. Running through our descriptions a little bit quicker this time for Sirius B. Again, we think it's aged at around 230 million years old, formed in a molecular cloud, However, it's a little bit different because this is not a full-fledged star. It is actually a white dwarf star. It's that remnant of a dead star, kind of like our sun-sized. Meaning that star is now dead, but still orbiting around Sirius. And that's also why it's so much smaller than Sirius and not as bright. The right ascension for this object is 06 hours, 45 minutes, and 09.0 seconds. And the declination is negative 16 degrees, 43 arc minutes, and 06 arc seconds. The spectral type, a little bit different because it is a white dwarf, is considered a DA2. Which, this type of white dwarf is really hydrogen rich in its atmosphere and kind of the outer layers of it. It is a companion star to Sirius A and can be a little difficult to see, but most orientations have it in the bottom left of Sirius B. When you're looking at the bright star, you see it down to the left. The apparent magnitude, though, is positive 8.44, making it very difficult when it's so close to Sirius A, and Sirius A is over negative 1, meaning that you're probably going to want at least like a 6-inch telescope that's at least somewhat decent, possibly even throw a filter in there a little bit, in order to try to distinguish those two stars themselves. I did see that you could possibly see it in as small as a four inch telescope, but I think that you would have to have a lot of experience and know what you're looking for in order to be able to see that. 
But either way, the white dwarf itself wouldn't normally be as difficult to see if it wasn't for the proximity it is to Sirius. There's our object of the week, the bright, brightest star in the entire night sky, doesn't matter which hemisphere you're on, Sirius. I, I like it. Sirius is a winter object here in the northern hemisphere, and it is very, very incredibly bright. You, you will notice it in the sky. It, it's quite beautiful as well, even through a telescope. I know bright stars may not be as interesting to everybody, but this one is actually pretty spectacular to look through, even just through a telescope or a pair of binoculars. Let's move on from Sirius and get into our questions of the week. Our first question comes from Reddit. Actually, all these questions come from Reddit this week. And this first one says, if the universe contracts, will galaxies outside the observable universe become visible? And so this is saying, if instead of a big expansion that we're in right now, what if eventually it turns around and we have a big crunch, will we be able to see the things that are outside of the observable universe? And the answer is yes, we will. The observable universe is less of, it's sort of a physical boundary, but it's an extent of how far we can see given that the universe is moving away and that light has a speed limit. Meaning that there's a certain limit, a threshold, where we just can't see any farther because at that distance, you, the universe is expanding so rapidly compared to us that light just will never reach us. But if you get rid of that expansion and instead start bringing things close together, well, now you just physically have things getting close to us. So we will be able to see things outside of our visible universe in our now visible universe, our observable universe. So it could be really cool, including we could see things that we've never seen before, because when humans were studying things, things were already past that threshold. But now, if we are around when the universe starts to contract like that, we'd start to be able to see things that were once outside of that and start learning more, which honestly could actually be some of the tickets to understanding how the universe works. But in summary, yes, we will be able to see things. Our next question of today is could we redirect space debris to the moon or maybe even Mars to be collected uh, in the future or for future generations past us to recollect and have those resources again? And simple answer is no, absolutely cannot do that for two reasons. One, the feasibility of it, the amount of money it would cost, the fuel, the logistics that you would need in order to change the movement of an object and to move things out of an orbit like that, you're talking you have to move it kilometers, maybe tens of kilometers a second worth of speed, which equals literal tons in fuel cost. Meaning that realistically, it just wouldn't be worth it because also now you're losing that spacecraft that just redirected all that space debris. But also physically, it wouldn't really work out unless we just had an unlimited budget and were able to slow down those materials before they reach the surface. If we change the orbit, well, now these space debris are going really, really fast. And if those were to land, land, if those were to impact Mars or the moon, they would be completely vaporized. When you're going at that sort of speed, it's basically when something's hitting the surface, it's as if a nuclear bomb explosion is happening. So that entire space debris would be incinerated. That's why we have these big craters on planets on moons is because things are going so fast 
that it's basically a nuclear bomb explosion. And that means that there's not going to really be much left for us to collect. But moving on now to our last question that reads, if you went faster than the speed of light, what would you see behind you? Would you just see blackness behind you? And admittedly, I can't, I'm not in any way an expert in this subject. And also this is very conceptual based and to try to make things not as high level and that everyone can understand it, we're gonna stay pretty basic with this. And basically, physics can't explain what would happen because physics breaks down when you're going the speed of light. Let alone that we wouldn't be able to do that anyways, this is a theoretical if you could, but it would take unlimited energy in order to move physical matter to the speed of light. Can't do that. Because at that time, at that point, just things break down. But physics doesn't work when you're going the speed of light. And at that point, time doesn't exist for you. Which is a weird concept, I know, but time ceases to exist. Space-time doesn't exist. The closer you get to the speed of light, the slower time appears to move. Meaning that, theoretically, if you got all the way to the speed of light, you move it at infinite speed you would actually slow down an infinite amount, meaning time would just straight up stop. It wouldn't exist. Meaning you wouldn't actually physically be able to look behind you, let alone you wouldn't be able to see anything even if you could. Again, I know that that's kind of weird and freaky subject to try to think about, but basically, no, physics breaks down, time doesn't exist at that point. <laughs> Our final section of this week is, of course, our picture of the week. And this one is of NGC 1944, which is also called the California Nebula. California Nebula, just because of the shape of the nebula. It kind of looks like it, actually. But this photo was posted on Reddit at the subreddit Astrophotography by the user Cobbs underscore Totem. And this photo is absolutely gorgeous. I cannot explain to you how beautiful this image is. The colors, the deepness, the absolute intricacies of the filaments within this nebula are incredible. It's a, It was made by a two-panel mosaic over nine nights, a total of 25 hours of data. And yeah, you can definitely tell. The equipment that was used was a Skywatcher Spirit 80, which is a triplet refractor. Gorgeous little uh, compact telescope that will be absolutely sharp in its images. The ASI 2600mm Pro, which is a CMOS cam dedicated astrophotography camera, but it shoots in mono, meaning that you have to have a filter wheel to actually see the colors and different channels of light and whatnot. And it uses a Sony imager. It's a, a really big uh, APS-C, I think it's called, a uh, sensor. It's a, it's a nice camera. <laughs> and a uh, Ioptron, or sorry, Celestron CEM-70 uh, equatorial mount. And to take the images as well, they used an ASI Air Pro which is a great little compact astrophotography computer that hooks up to all your equipment and you connect to it on your phone and you can run sequences. It's a, it's a great little compact computer. As for the data taken, 
they used a lot of filters, of course, and in the O3, Oxygen 3, they captured 119 frames, HA captured 91, or Hydrogen Alpha, S2, or Sulfur, it, they captured 91 as well, they did 80 flats, 80 darks, and 80 biases. And all of these, I believe, were five minute long exposures. And then I think that math adds up to 25 hours. But either way, it is absolutely a gorgeous image. Just absolutely incredible job. I know that my opinion may not be what you're searching for, but from the astrophotography and amateur astronomy uh, community, just absolutely gorgeous image. Good job. All right, guys, but I think that is everything we have for this evening. We had some great stories, some really great topics and objects uh, outside of the space news as well. I feel like this may not have been the longest of episodes, but it was a really dense of great knowledge within it. And so I, I think I'll take that over a long episode with less dense of knowledge. But as always, if you want your questions or your photos featured in an episode of the Skywalk podcast, just uh, you can tweet at me. I will see any tweets, but also the subreddit and the discord are where you can post those images and those questions, as well as for questions, simply just leave it in the description on these episodes or leave a comment on a YouTube video, anything like that, anything that's related to Skywalk or the zombified parent YouTube channel company you can absolutely leave a comment and question and photo or anything like that and that's where I will be able to see it so that you can be featured in an episode like this as well. But with all that being said, I also have to mention to please, as always, the one thing I can ask of you guys is to continue interacting with these episodes. Leave likes, leave comments, even just an emoji. That's all you have to leave, just an emoji just to show the algorithms YouTube that you guys are engaged and that will help with the discovery of this podcast. But the other thing that you can also do is just word of mouth. That's the best way to spread podcasts is by telling a friend. So today, let's say you're, uh, we talked about black holes at one point, uh, I believe. Yeah, we are, let's, let's go with uh, your, your friend that you would most likely push into a black hole. That's who you should tell and recommend this podcast to. And now with all that being said, I think that is all I have for you guys today. This has been the Skywalk Podcast, bringing you your weekly dose of space news and facts. I've been Gavin, your host. You guys have been absolutely wonderful listeners, and I will see you all next time in another episode.